You're listening to Unpaused, a podcast for women who want to stage a career comeback or mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. This is a bonus episode, yet another one prompted by a book I've read in recent times. I've got Leonie Marsh, my producer on the line, and she's going to ask me some questions. Good morning, Leonie. Hello, Judy. Well, can you tell me what prompted you to make this episode? Well, I've been reading a new book about Eleanor Roosevelt, my favourite person, called Eleanor in the Village by Jan Jarbo Russell. So tell me about the book. Well, it's about how Eleanor Roosevelt really led a double life, which was very much defined by the four walls around her. So she lived this parallel life in her 40s that took her well beyond the reach of her family, her husband and her mother-in-law, because things hadn't really turned out quite the way she'd imagined. And I just love the way it played out in these different parts of New York. Her family home was on the Upper East Side in a very swish part of town. And her other life she played out down in Greenwich Village where a very different culture and society was at work. And so what's the context here in terms of what was happening behind the scenes? Well, I think what set the scene in the book was firstly Eleanor's early life. I think I've covered this in other episodes, but her mother died when she was eight. Her mother was only 29. She died of diphtheria. And then her brother died the next year and her father died of alcoholism in his mid-30s just before she turned 10. So she was orphaned which for a little girl, you can imagine how dreadful that was. She was brought up by her grandmother and her grandmother very significantly sent her to England to a beautiful school called Allenswood, which was a very progressive school with a very progressive headmistress who was hugely influential on Eleanor. They were really sort of educated the way boys were educated. You know, they learned about the ancient world. They learned about the physical world. They were interested in world affairs. And most importantly, this wonderful headmistress, Marie Suvestre, educated Eleanor to have a social conscience. And this was really the beginning of her realisation that she could influence her world in her way. And not to do that would be considered a failure in the headmistress's eyes. So that was the first thing. And then she marries Franklin, but she had this very domineering mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law built two townhouses up on the Upper East Side, which adjoined one another up in East 65th Street and famously arranged for connecting doors between her house and Eleanor's house. So even when she was in her most private apartments, her mother-in-law could let herself in at any moment. She had five children and a husband, and this woman basically ran the show. And the longer this lasted, you know, with the mother coming and going, the mother telling her how to organise a social life, the mother telling her how to bring up the children, Eleanor just sort of receded into herself. She had no confidence. She was uncomfortable. She wasn't confident socially, and she was miserable. And then when she was, I think, 34, she discovered a cache of letters in Franklin's luggage on his return from a trip overseas, which showed that he'd been conducting a deep affair with a woman called Lucy Mercer. And 
Eleanor was still in love with Franklin and when she discovered these letters, she realised her marriage was over. In fact, she offered him a divorce, which the mother-in-law who held the purse strings in terms of Franklin's money said to Franklin that if they divorced, she would cut him off without a penny. And so they didn't divorce. But from that moment on, she realised that she had to make a life of her own. She was very hurt and very sad. And that was what created this spur for this second life. Tell me about what she found in Washington Square and why did the geography matter? Well, the way I read the book, there was definitely a sort of a geographical revolt at work. Greenwich Village was a world away from East 65th Street, both physically, you know, one's sort of up towards the top and one's down towards the bottom. But also the area around Washington Square was very much the home of what they called the new woman in America. And this was a global movement of women who sort of created a community of feminists for themselves and rejected the traditional view of the way a woman should live, you know, married, dependent on a husband, not able to hold property, not able to have a job. If she did have a job, she didn't get equal pay. They were activists against all of that. But also they were creating in this village a lifestyle that suited themselves, you know, where they could drink in public, they could smoke in public, they could congregate and live exactly as they pleased. And many of them lived as partners, which was unusual for the time. And in 1921, Eleanor's approaching 40, which I think is such a pivotal time for a woman. She meets these two women who were to become lifelong friends. They were partners and their names were Esther Lappe and Elizabeth Reed. Lappe was a, um, a professor of literature and later became a journalist. And Reed was a lawyer who was a very safe pair of hands and she ultimately went on to be Eleanor's financial advisor. So they were two very well-educated for the time, very cultured women who led a very uh, interesting life together. Eleanor was very attracted to them and they became sort of the, the core of this coterie of about 10 women who lived in the village and who influenced her in a very positive way. They introduced her to their friends who were all doing different things. They included her in the conversation that they were having about social and economic change for women. They helped her to realise that she had ability as well, even though she was not college educated, which is something she lamented for her whole life. But they helped her to sort of really come into full flower. And they also reintroduced her to the life that she had last led at Allenswood, where, you know, they'd have these amazing dinner parties and everything would be beautifully done. Um, and they'd talk about politics all through dinner. And then after dinner, they would recite poetry to one another in French. You know, it, it was very special. So what happened and how did this new sense of independence manifest itself? Well, quite incredibly, I think, she took a lease of a space in the same building as La Paix and Reed. And it was only tiny. And for four nights a week, she came and lived in that space. She left the family with grandma and the nannies and she came down and slept down here in this apartment and engaged in this way of life. And 
while she still fulfilled the formal responsibilities of being a mother and wife, you know, she never let those slide, she determinedly carved out this second life for herself. She discovered that she was very good at organising, and that sounds like a sort of a soft skill, but it was something that she really excelled at, and it was something that enabled her to be very effective, for instance, in the war years as First Lady, when she was doing these grand tours of the Army and Navy and uh, Air Force campuses and hospitals. She had a really good eye for people. She was a really good judge of character and had great insight. And as you know, not everyone's great at that and lots of mistakes are made when you, you know, fall in with the wrong people. And she had amazing endurance. She was a big woman. She was five foot 11 and quite a big frame, but she could leave everyone for dead. She just never stopped. And this prodigious work ethic that she had and stamina to do what was needed to be done again, stood her in very good stead. She could really outpace just about everybody. And within two years, she built the confidence, she built the skills, she really immersed herself in a lot of these social activism endeavours. And she was really transformed into being a major identity and force in New York life. She was in high demand as a public speaker. Um, she spoke out about workers' rights and children's rights in particular. She was sought out by journalists for pithy statements that they could report in the newspapers. And she was invited to serve on influential city committees. And by doing all of these things, she carved out this embryonic profile that we now know grew into a a national profile when she um, became First Lady. And she, you know, by then had her own daily newspaper column, which just, I'd just pause there for a minute to say she wrote a column every day, sometimes on a train, sometimes, you know, on a railway siding, sometimes in bed. But she got it out every day. It was syndicated across the country. She was an incredible voice this public speaking role grew. And also she often was the voice of the very disadvantaged. She really was a commanding figure, but you can trace it all back to those days back in Greenwich Village. This is quite a nice story. And it's the story that probably first piqued my interest in Eleanor having this apartment in Washington Square. She first had the apartment in the same building as um, LaPay and Reed, but she she and Franklin ultimately in 1942, which was during the war years, took a lease on a more substantial space for four years right on Washington Square. And there's a plaque on the building. If you go to Washington Square, you can see, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt lived here. They took this four-year lease with a view to having it when World War II finished, and that would be where they'd go when they left the White House. As it was, Franklin never slept a night there, but he did visit once, and that was in his last campaign in 1944. There were rumours swirling that he was not well enough to be the president for a fourth term. So to prove the naysayers wrong, he arranged a really big day in New York, visiting four of the five boroughs of New York in an open-top car. As it turned out, it was a very wet day. 
freezing cold and pouring with rain. He was in poor health. But he pulled himself together and did this all-day marathon tour in the pouring rain, which required him to have a complete change of clothing at least twice. On one of those occasions, he stopped at the apartment in Washington Square that he and Eleanor had leased, but Eleanor lived in regularly. And he went there for the first time, went upstairs in the lift and bathed, changed his clothes, rested, and was there to see for the first time how Eleanor completely occupied this space in her own way. He was absolutely amazed that this was a life that he had absolutely no part in and that she had made for herself. And Doris Kearns Goodwin, who wrote a book called No Ordinary Time, which I've talked about before, wrote, it's interesting to imagine what Roosevelt might have thought as he looked about his wife's cheerful apartment, observing a part of his wife's life he had not seen before. For years, Eleanor had enjoyed an independent life apart from his, and now for a few moments, he was a witness to that life. It's a pretty incredible story. Yeah, I love that. So how does Josh Frydenberg and Virginia Woolf come into this, Judy? Well, I have to say I was prompted to really get into this because we had a recent federal election here in Australia and within a week of the government that Josh Frydenberg was the treasurer of, within a week of that government falling and losing and Josh Frydenberg actually losing his blue ribbon seat, he had pulled himself together The kitchen table was not for him. He'd taken a space in the Como Centre in South Yarra in Melbourne, hired a secretary, this was all funded by donors, and set up shop looking for opportunities for the next stage. And I thought, how does he do that? Most people I know would want to bury themselves in a hole, would sit at home and think, I can't afford to spend any money on myself, I've just been completely trounced. But no, no, this incredible confidence of being a part of the future prevails and, you know, away they go. So that's what prompted me to put that together with the Eleanor story. I mean, she did it on a more modest scale and even what she did was pretty incredible. You know, I don't think there are many of us who take an apartment across town, but it did also remind me of Virginia Woolf's famous essay, she wrote in 1929, which is at exactly the time that Eleanor is taking those early steps in Washington Square, called A Room of One's Own, where she basically says, look, women and men are just as capable, but women get sidetracked all the time because they don't have anywhere to go to work where the house doesn't follow them. So I suppose my exhortation to our listeners is to say it's really important to find a space to work where the house does not distract you. It's very hard to get anything done if you're constantly stopping and starting to attend to the everlasting demands of living in a house with other people. And it doesn't mean that you have to go and spend a fortune. But I have to say that I did, before COVID myself, go into a shared office space with a whole lot of other people and made two very nice friends and was infinitely more productive than I ever was sitting at home on my own. It was social. It was friendly. Everyone had their head down to work, but they did socialize in between times. And I think that when this 
post-COVID world finally emerges, it's going to be important to invest a little bit, even for a morning a week in doing good work without other things impinging on that space. So ER, Josh Frydenberg, Virginia Woolf. Judy Stewart. Judy Stewart. It's all good food for thought. I think that's sort of where I got to, but lots more to talk about about Eleanor Roosevelt. It's my favourite subject. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unpaused. I'd love you to subscribe on iTunes or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. You can find the show notes or sign up for news on my website, unpaused.net, or see what we're up to on Instagram or my LinkedIn page. Bye for now.